Hello, everyone, and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we describe a trail that is our longest trail yet covered on the show. This trail goes for over 300 miles or over 500 kilometers. This hike goes along the shore of the largest body of fresh water in the world. But it's not an easy or boring lakeshore stroll. This is a multi-week adventure with a surprising amount of up and down, most of it through a deeply forested, remote wilderness. But the hike is worth the effort. Every mile has a view over the giant lake alongside the trail or a waterfall. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Superior Hiking Trail along Lake Superior in Minnesota. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today's guest on the show is Andy Kermode of the Hiking Through Life podcast. That's a really um, neat podcast that Andy and his wife Sarah have, where they, where Andy's the producer, Sarah's the host, so they work together as a team. And Sarah interviews folks who have interesting stories to tell about their experiences in the outdoors or their engagement with the outdoors and how they came to love the outdoors. We'll talk a little bit more about that when Andy and I um, talk during the interview portion of the show. But Andy's our guest today on the show to talk about his through hike of the Superior Hiking Trail in 2019, where he hiked the trail from north to south. Before we get to that interview, I want to tell you about Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. I found Outdoor Herbivore after switching to a plant-based diet. I love outdoor herbivore backpacking meals because they have quality ingredients. They have tasty meals with a good selection. You don't need to be a vegetarian to love them. One of the things that's great about outdoor herbivore backpacking meals is that they have plenty of calories per serving so that you get enough to eat when you're out there and you've been hiking all day and you're really hungry and it's not one of those backpacking meals that only has 300 calories per serving. Most outdoor herbivore backpacking meals are more than 600 calories per serving. They are packaged fairly tightly so that they fit well in bear cans. They're in boil-in-the-bag packaging where you just pour in the hot water, seal it up, and wait 10 minutes and your dinner's ready. If you're a hiker that carries uh, tortillas and likes to eat tortillas on the trail, like I do, you could try their Switchback Burrito Stuffer or the Naked Freckled Burrito which I've tried the Naked Freckled Burrito. I haven't tried the Switchback Burrito Stuffer yet, but I plan to. If you love pasta, you could try their Chickpea Sesame Zeti. And there are lots of other great options on their website at OutdoorHerbivore.com. As a Trails Worth Hiking listener, you get a 10% discount on your order if you enter the discount code TWH10P. So that's all capitals on the letters. Capital TWH10P. Trails Worth Hiking 10%. It's not really backpacking season right now as we head into the holidays, but because it's the holidays, give yourself a holiday gift of some outdoor herbivore meals or buy some for another backpacker in your life. 
Again, the discount code is TWH10P for 10% off on outdoor herbivore backpacking meals. Check it out. All right, let's talk about the Superior Hiking Trail. The Superior Hiking Trail runs along the remote north shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota. So first, we really need to talk about Lake Superior. Lake Superior is the largest and northernmost Great Lake of the Great Lakes in the United States. Part of Lake Superior is in the United States. Part is in Canada. There are a few states that are along the shore of Lake Superior, including Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. Lake Superior is the largest body by surface area of fresh water on Earth. The Caspian Sea is a bigger lake, but that's a a salt lake. And Lake Baikal in Russia has more water volume because it's deeper. But Lake Superior is the largest lake on Earth of fresh water by surface area. It's 160 miles wide or 257 kilometers. It's 350 miles long or 563 kilometers. It has 31,700 square miles, which is 82,100 square kilometers of surface area. It has a shoreline of 2,726 miles, which is 4,385 kilometers. And it's 1,300 feet deep at its deepest point, which is about 400 meters deep. Lake Superior has three quadrillion gallons of water. I don't even know what a quadrillion is, but I think it's a lot. Let's think about it this way. If you were to empty Lake Superior, there would be enough water to flood all of North and South America in one foot deep of water. Lake Superior has more water in it than all the other Great Lakes combined. Because the lake is so big, even though it's in a very cold climate, it rarely completely freezes, but it does happen. And it happened as recently as 2014. Lake Superior took shape about 1.2 billion years ago as a continental rift, although the lake itself is much less old. People began living there after the glaciers retreated. The animals in the area include bats, black bear, wolves, moose, and many other animals. There's also some interesting plants in the area. One of the things that's most interesting about the plant species, primarily flower species in the area, is that there are flowers there that are basically Arctic, subarctic, and alpine plants that grew up in the wake of the receding glaciers after the last ice age that formed the lake. They were the first plants to take hold. Uh, They are perennials that can take hold near ice, and they improve the soil for later plants. Other plants took over mostly later, but there are some inhospitable areas such as peatlands, eroding cliffs, slopes, and the shores of cold lakes like Lake Superior where some of these where some of these relic plants are still able to grow. They're called relic and disjunctive. Relic because they're plants from another time period that are still there. And disjunctive because most plants like them are not found contiguous with them, but are found much further north. They're essentially plants from the past that are far from others like themselves. Some examples are the encrusted saxifrage, butterwort, and northern paintbrush and they survive in microhabitats around Lake Superior. These plants can be found at Sugarloaf Point, 
Iona's Beach, and the Butterwort Cliffs. The Lake Superior area has a mix of uh, hardwood and conifer trees. Prior to European settlement, it was mostly mixed conifer forest. There was a lot of logging in the late 1800s and early 1900s that removed most of the white pine and white cedar, and birch and aspen trees grew up in their place. And now those birch and aspen trees are old and dying, and the conifers are not regenerating. So there actually needs to be some planning to figure out how to regenerate these forests along the shores of Lake Superior. And this is somewhat of a problem, but there are organizations out there working on the problem. Humans have inhabited the Lake Superior area since 8,000 BC following the Ice Age. Because of the size of Lake Superior, there were many different indigenous peoples living around the Lake Superior area. As late as the 1600s, Madeline Island had an Ojibwe settlement of thousands of people. French and British European settlement began with fur trading, and the French were there until the French and Indian War was won by the British in 1763. After that, mining began, and there was copper and silver mining, and then logging followed that. The Superior Hiking Trail starts or finishes, depending on whether you're going south to north or north to south, in Duluth, Minnesota, which is an interesting city. Duluth is a port city on Lake Superior's North Shore. It's an 85,000-person city, but about there are about 280,000 people living in the Duluth metropolitan area. And it's the largest metropolitan area on Lake Superior. One of the things that's really interesting is that Duluth, even though it's very far inland, is accessible to the Atlantic Ocean. It's 2,300 miles away from the Atlantic Ocean, which is 3,700 kilometers. But via the Great Lakes Waterway and the St. Lawrence Seaway, you can reach the ocean from Duluth, Minnesota. It's the farthest inland port accessible to ocean-going ships. And it's also the largest and busiest port of the Great Lakes. So the history of Lake Superior's North Shore is not all uh, about nature or even about shipping in Duluth. There is a little bit of a darker side to the history of the North Shore. And one part of that is the history of gangsters using the North Shore as a refuge. During Prohibition, Chicago's gangsters sometimes needed a place to cool their heels while the law was looking for them, and the North Shore of Lake Superior was one place where they did that. They could take advantage of its really remote location as a place uh, they could make moonshine, or they could use the lake itself to run illegal liquor, and it was a great place to hide out. One such place is the Lutzen Resort. Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, and even Al Capone hung out there. There's one story where Capone arrived with a woman he called his wife, but who was not his wife, and he asked for a really remote spot to stay in, and they offered him a fish house that was two miles away from the resort. And when he left, the fish house was riddled with bullet holes. Nobody's exactly sure what happened and why he shot up the place or who shot up the place, but Capone had to pay an extra $20 uh, upon checking out of the resort to cover the cost of all the damage he had caused. Another famous place along the North Shore where gangsters spent some time is the Nanny Bougie Social Club, which was built in 1927. 
Capone and Dillinger also frequented this place as well. And as well as uh, Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey and other famous people. When people referenced a secret North Shore resort, they usually meant the Nanny Bougie Social Club. The club closed in 1935 for several years, but then it reopened, and it's actually still open today. It's near Hovland, which is along the trail on the North Shore, and you can go there and stay there and have dinner there. The sordid past of gangster involvement on the North Shore didn't end after the 1930s and after Prohibition and and after the sort of gangsters that we've all heard about from that era. It has continued up until pretty recent times. From 1982 to 1997, William Kirkpatrick and Ray Bowman were bank robbers that heisted more than $8 million from banks around the country. In 1997, they pulled off the largest bank robbery in U.S. history. They stole almost $4.5 million from Seafirst Bank in Tacoma, Washington, they actually had to pull out bags of cash that weighed 355 pounds. And what they would do is after their robberies, they would split up and go back to their respective homes. And Kirkpatrick went home to Hovland, Minnesota, which is along the North Shore, along the trail. He was finally caught, though, when he gave his girlfriend $188,000 in cash to buy a new log cabin. And the builder was suspicious and alerted the IRS, who alerted the FBI. And he had also been pulled over in Nebraska when he had gone to get some cash that they had stashed there. And he was he had $1.8 million in cash in the car when he was pulled over. In any event, Bowman and Kirkpatrick eventually both went to prison. Kirkpatrick has since been released. Not clear if Bowman has. But who knows? Maybe Kirkpatrick is back on the North Shore near Hovland or in Hovland today. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the Superior Hiking Trail itself. So the vision for this was to have a long-distance trail on the Rocky Ridge Line over Lake Superior. Minnesota's North Shore, due to its steep topography and lack of tillable soil, had never been an area that was heavily settled. Before the Superior Hiking Trail, there was really only a handful of fishermen and berry pickers and hunters that were using the area. The idea for the trail was inspired by folks who knew about the Appalachian Trail and wanted to build something similar along this north shore of Lake Superior. Construction on the trail began in the mid-1980s, and in 1986, they created the Superior Hiking Trail Association, which managed planning and construction and care of the trail. They got grants from the state of Minnesota to help build the trail, and by 1990, they were halfway done with it though it wasn't fully completed until 2016. The Superior Hiking Trail is a continuous trail from the Wisconsin-Minnesota border to what's called the 270-degree outlook, which is within sight of the Canadian border. The resort and lodge owners along the trail, or along the area where the trail is, were big supporters of it and still are, as you might imagine. One interesting thing about the trails is just for hikers. No bikes, horses, or motorized vehicles are allowed on it which is different from a lot of trails, although it's pretty common not to allow bikes on single track trails. At least out here in the West where I live, horses are on a lot of the trails. So that's something interesting to me that they don't allow horses on the trail. Also, the Superior Hiking Trail is a small part of the 
larger North Country National Scenic Trail that goes from North Dakota to Vermont. To talk about the hike itself, I had a conversation with Andy Kermode, who produces the Hiking Through Life podcast, which his wife, Sarah, hosts. In the Hiking Through Life podcast, Sarah interviews people connected to the outdoors in lots of interesting ways, and those guests tell their story to inspire others to get outdoors. So one such guest that they had on that show is yours truly. I appeared on episode 60 of the Hiking Through Life podcast. On this show, I talk about trails, but don't spend much time on my own story. I really only tell it in little bits and pieces as I go along, and particularly, I guess, on episodes where I'm interviewing my son or my daughter. But if you are at all interested in my own story and how I became interested in the outdoors and, and you know how that grew over time, check out the Hiking Through Life podcast, episode 60, and you can get a better sense of, of how I came to appreciate the outdoors as I do now. I'll put a link to the episode in the show notes. With that, here is Andy Kermode on Through Hiking, the Superior Hiking Trail. Andy Kermode from the Hiking Through Life podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So how did you first learn about the Superior Hiking Trail? Um, a friend of mine actually introduced it to me back in 2014. He and a couple of our other friends decided that it would be a great time to go out and try out this new activity of ours, backpacking. So in 2014, this is when you first started backpacking? Correct. Yeah, I grew up camping with my family, but it was always the drive-in type sites. But um, So I was familiar with the outdoors, but excited to do something a little bit more remote. And so was your first backpacking trip actually on a section of the Superior Hiking Trail? It was, yes. Okay, so it only made sense for you to someday go back and try to do the whole thing. That's kind of what happens to every hiker, I think, when you get on a part of a trail. Yeah, definitely. Once I got out there that very first time, there was something in me that just longed for doing the entire trail. And I finally was able to do that last year. And have you, so in between, this is, you said 2014, I think, and yeah. you hiked it in 2019. Did you do a lot of backpacking between 2014 and 2019? Yeah. So once I started in 2014, I went out a lot. And when I w met my wife, Sarah, in 2015, we went out almost every weekend that first year that we started dating. And oh, wow. So, yeah. We did a ton of backpacking. Most of it actually was up on the Superior Hiking Trail. So we did a lot of little sections weekend by weekend. What was the part of it? I mean, we'll get to the different parts of the trail, but what was the part of it that was most new to you? Were there big sections of it that you hadn't done at all and others that you had been more, you know, you had backpacked on more frequently? Yeah, there was a couple of kind of favorite spots that I would frequent more often. And so there was also a section of the trail more towards the south, that Duluth section where there aren't really any campsites, which I thought, you know what, I would probably never do this unless I hiked the entire trail. So I was excited to do those sections that didn't maybe look as appealing to me in the guidebook, but getting out there to do the whole trail, I figured I needed to do the whole thing to make it worthwhile. So, What was the longest trip you had? So this is a 310-mile backpacking trip that you did. What was the longest backpacking trip you had done before that? Before then, the longest I've done was a five-day trip. My wife and I went to the Porcupine Mountains in 
the UP of Michigan, and we spent five days out there. How long? Do, how long of a mileage do you think that was, roughly? Uh, roughly, it was probably about 35, 40 miles. We did a one 10-mile day, and then we did some five to eight-mile days. And so this was a huge test for you doing the spear hiking trail. This is a big jump. It was. It was. And it was something that I wanted to test myself with in my hiking experience was, could I do something that was this 310 mile long? Because part of me also aspires to do something like the AT or the PCT, which is quite a bit longer than the Superior Hiking Trail. And this was a a real good kind of starter trail to see if I really enjoyed myself out there for that. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're feeling. I I live here in the Western United States in California, and I've looked at the PCT as a possibility for years and years, and I've hiked big sections of it, like the John Muir Trail. Those those are a great way to sort of see how you do in that longer resupply kind of environment where you're not just doing a few days and then going home. And if you're someone who comes out the other end loving it, I think the dream for the bigger trails does grow. At least it has for me, and it sounds like maybe for you too. Yeah, definitely. After my superior hiking trail through hike, it was evident for myself that I really enjoyed it and that I do aspire to do more through hikes throughout my life. And whether it be those very long trails or even shorter trails like the Colorado Trail is on my list. Um, the Long Trail in Vermont is also on my list. Those are both on my list too. The Colorado Trail is on my list because it feels like the longest I could possibly do without quitting my job. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what did you do to go about planning your thru-hike of the Superior Hiking Trail? Well, I first off, the resupply thing was completely new to me. This is the first hike I've ever done where I needed to resupply because the five days we carried all our food and everything for that entire trip. So the resupply was kind of where I started. I figured out, okay, you know, how many miles do I think I can average a day and where are the towns along the trail? So once I knew the mileage between resupply towns or viable resupply towns, then I kind of just divided it by what I thought I could do as far as mileage. And I kind of did a, I would say maybe a little bit aggressive, but not too aggressive type of mileage. I thought I could do it in, you know, 15 miles a day. And the longest I had hiked prior to this was a 12-mile day, and that was back when Sarah and I did Jasper National Park for our honeymoon. That was up in the mountains, so I was like, okay, 12 miles, this terrain's a little bit easier, it's not up in the Canadian Rockies, so I think I can do 15 miles a day. So that allowed me, I knew the, the southern section of the Superior Hiking Trail is a little bit flatter. It's more rolling hills and stuff, so I could make up more mileage there if it took me longer up north. So started out with the resupply, figured all of that out, and then from there, I I was comfortable because I had hiked enough sections of the trail to kind of know what to expect. So it was just more so getting out there and see seeing what happened on the trail. And you decided to hike this solo, or I should say, you de- I say you decided, but maybe it was decided for you and that you didn't have someone else willing to do it with you. But how, how did that come about? Was that basically by default? My wife and I had always kind of talked about doing a through hike. Um, I knew I always wanted to do one. She was a little bit more on the fence about it. And we did a little bit of a road trip last summer where we went out 
east and did a couple nights on the Appalachian Trail and a couple nights on the Long Trail. And after the Long Trail, we had some bad weather. It rained the whole time, and it was going straight up these mountains for three hours at a time. So after that trip, she was like, yeah, I don't think a through hike is for me. She was like, I think my limit is that five days on the trail, then I want to get back to town, get back to people. And so that kind of solidified my soloness on the trail. <laughs> there weren't any other other, other uh, friends out there who were interested in going. Uh, no, it was a little short notice for them to kind of plan around work and stuff. And I had recently quit my job to just do this road trip with my wife. We knew we were going to have a kid soon. So we just decided, you know, it's been a dream of ours. We've been saving up to do this kind of mini road trip. Uh, I guess it's not necessarily mini. We went out east to Maine and then came back out west all the way to Idaho. And so I figured once I got back, that's the perfect time to go on this through hike. Now, what's the season for this through hike? What's the the range of months that most people should be thinking about if someone's interested in doing this hike? Um, If you're looking to do a through hike on the Superior Hiking Trail, anywhere from, I would say, late May to probably late September is the range. If you get later in the fall, you got to be careful because they do close a good section of the trail for deer hunting. Um, a lot of the trail goes through private land in sections. So those landowners will close the trail for hunting on their own land. And then if you go too early, like April, you're still, you may encounter snow up there and the trail is just too wet and muddy. And so they advise you not to walk the trail. And so you did this in early September for your start date. Yes. Yeah. And I figured fall would be the perfect time. Because one, it's cool enough, there's no bugs. Two, you got the fall colors, all the leaves are starting to change. And I just, I love fall for hiking. It's just, I think it's the perfect weather. You got cold nights to sleep. I love sleeping in the cold. I hate sleeping too hot. So it just ended up working out perfectly. And what's the weather in the area of this hike? I mean, how, did, how does that figure into your planning? Well, like I said, I like it a little bit cooler. So in September, the weather ranged from highs in the 70s a couple days to lows almost to freezing. There was a couple nights where it got down below 40 degrees. So I did have to pack a wide variety of clothing. Some of it where if I did hike in the summer months, I might have been able to save some weight because I wouldn't have had to carry those warmer layers or such a warm sleeping bag. So I was just looking back at my weight on my pack and my base weight was a little higher than I wanted to. It wasn't bad, but that was one thing that I might change about doing a, another through hike is trying to get some lighter gear because it was around 25 pounds for my base weight. But yeah, hiking that many miles with then adding food on top of that gets to be a lot. Yeah, it only takes one of those big trips with a heavy pack for you to, to convert to a lightweight uh, ideology, I think. Yeah. So, but you had quite a bit of rain, didn't you? Yeah, and surprisingly, it was a quite a wet fall that year, I guess. My first week, it rained every day. If it didn't rain during the day, it rained at night. So the trail was soaking wet, and I just got, I got super wet. 
my boots got pretty wet as well. So I had some foot issues because my my boots kind of swelled up, my feet swelled up from all the walking, my my socks never dried out. And so the back of my boots were digging a little bit into my heels, so I had to eventually switch out of my boots and I bought trail runners. And those trail runners were great because they would actually dry out a lot quicker. So the next morning, they'd be fairly dry at least compared to my boots and a lot more flexible too. So um, it allowed my feet to kind of move around a little bit more without, you know, being so abrasive like my boots. Now, you said you were planning for about 15 miles a day. How did that work out? Did you end up generally doing around that? Or I think you um, had a couple of big days maybe, and then maybe some days that were less than that. But how did that work out in practice? It actually went real well at the beginning, and I was on pace. I did a big 18-mile day my second day, which was a little bit more than expected, but it was it had to do with how far away some of the campsites were. In the middle, though, when I had my foot issues after that first week is when I slowed down and I was only doing about 10 miles a day. But then at the end, where in that southern section I had mentioned earlier, it kind of gets a little flatter, more rolly hills. I was able to do some 20, almost 30 mile days. What was the most you did in a day? 28 miles. Did you even think that you'd ever do 28 miles in a day on a backpacking trip? No, no, never. <laughs> but um, I thought, you know, maybe way far down the line when I get real seasoned and maybe I'm on the AT or something like that and I'm a couple months in. But no, not on this trail. I I was so bummed, though, because the next campsite was about seven miles away. And I was like, if it was three miles, I would push to get past that 30 mark. <laughs> So how many days in total did the trip end up taking you? It ended up taking me 21 days. So I set out with the goal of completing it in 21 days, but I did have a buffer. I was like, all right, if it's, if I do have issues, I might, you know, I'd be able to extend it 28 days, but yeah, I was feeling real good at the end and kind of kicking out those miles. So it ended up being 21. And a lot of people do this trip, I think, south to north, and that seems to be the prevailing way to do it. But you did it north to south. Why did you make that decision? I wanted to do it because I figured right away when I get out there, the northernmost section is the most remote, the most secluded, less traveled. So I figured I, I kind of wanted to get away from people initially. And then I also wanted to do some of the harder part of the trail as well. And right away, right out of the gate. And then once I got down to the Duluth area where there's not those campsites and it's more developed and I encounter a lot more people, I figured after a couple of weeks of kind of being out on the trail on my own, I would want that more interaction with people and stuff like that. So that's kind of part of the reason I did that. And another reason that actually ended up working out really well was all my resupply boxes, I ended up dropping off at local businesses along the way when my wife brought me up to the Northern Terminus to drop me off. So I didn't have to mail them and save some money that way. Yeah, logistically, that works out pretty well. If you're just getting a one-way shuttle up to the Northern Terminus, you can drop everything on the way, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you decided, you mentioned, I think before, that you decided to do the total through hike, which is all the way through Duluth. And there's a tradition, that what they call a traditional through hike, where people basically exclude the Duluth portion of the trip. Why did you decide to do the total through hike? 
I just felt like it wouldn't have been a through hike for me, at least, if I didn't do the whole thing. I mean, it's that that southern part is called the Superior Hiking Trail as well. So I figured I had to do the entire thing, even if a lot of people kind of exclude it just because there aren't campsites along the trail right there. So you do have to find other lodging. There are a couple paid campgrounds. You can do hotels. I mean, the city of Duluth is big enough where you can get Airbnbs as well. So. But yeah, I figured, okay, I'm going to go do that section because it's probably the only time that I would ever hike it. I wouldn't necessarily seek it out for a weekend hike or anything like that. And so what kind of gear choices did you make? Were you using kind of your standard setup for your the shorter backpacking trips you had done in the past? Or did you make some different gear choices because of the distance? I just went with what I had. If I were to do, do it again, just based on my experience, I th- I think I might change up to do some lighter gear, but I went with what I had, what I normally hike with on a little weekend section hike. And it did help to be solo though, because I didn't have to carry all of the cooking stuff that my wife and I bring. I mean, it also maybe is a downside too, because her and I split the weight versus, you know, me having to carry it all on this solo hike. You used a hammock on this trip versus a tent. Is that something you typically do? I did before I met my wife, and then we tried to do it for a little while in one hammock because she refused to sleep in her own hammock. So (laughs) that got a little tight, as you could imagine. And sometimes on those hotter nights, it was not fun sleeping two people in a hammock. So we kind of converted back to a tent. But whenever I go solo, I love doing a hammock. And what do you love about the hammock in this environment? Is it is it really because of the wetness of the terrain, or is it just a more comfortable way to sleep for you? Well, both, actually. Um, for one, I think it's more comfortable, and then I don't have to bring a sleeping pad. Usually we bring air mattresses, so I don't have to worry about that popping possibly on this 21-day hike. But yes, another thing is it stays off the ground, so it stays clean, it stays dry. Um, the only thing that got wet really was my rain fly for it and a couple of my straps. But yeah, it's very easy to pack then and it doesn't get all your other gear wet. I took my rain fly and actually secured that on the outside of my pack so it didn't really get anything on the inside wet. And the the water in this area, does it have to be filtered? Yeah, I would highly recommend it. I mean, you could probably, I mean, there's enough flowing streams and stuff, but I would highly recommend filtering it. And what about uh, the food situation at night? Do you hang food from a tree or are there posts in the different campsites or how does that work for securing food from animals? Yeah, it's all hanging. There's a couple of bear cables in some some areas where there are some problem bears, but for the most part, it's hanging from trees. And that's exactly what I did. I just took a dry bag and strung it up with some paracord. Out here in the West, we almost always use down sleeping bags. But to me, that seems like maybe not a great choice when you're in a really wet environment. Do you use a down sleeping bag in Minnesota or do you go with a synthetic that might stay warmer when it's wet? I go with the synthetic just for ease of use. Just like you said, if it gets wet, like it, it stays warmer and I don't have to pay as much attention because it is quite, it can be quite wet, I should say. And especially in the winter too, I'm... We've done a little bit of winter camping too, so if you get a little bit of snow and if it warms up during the day and starts melting and stuff like that, you don't have to worry about your your down bag getting wet or your synthetic bag. You mentioned the 
the fact that the weight was a little much at times, or it seemed like you were carrying more gear maybe than you would, would have wanted to. Did you jettison some gear along the way or figure out a way to lighten things as you went? Yeah, actually the first week after my feet started having some issues, my wife came up to the trail and actually both of our moms actually came up with her too. It's kind of a girl's trip slash um, help Andy <laughs> with his <laughs> gear and his shoes. But yeah, they came up and I was able to kind of give her some gear to take back home, some things that I that I just wanted for entertainment in a way. Like I had my GoPro and I was going to record a bunch of stuff, but then all those accessories and stuff, I was just like, you know what, I can deal with my phone. I can take video on my phone if I really want to take video. I had the guidebook and I had that just for one to find water sources, which were plentiful on the trail. On this trail, you you come across water sources all the time. And the other reason I brought the guidebook too is just for, you know, sitting around camp and something to read. But I did discover quickly that I just wanted to get rid of as much gear as I could get rid of. And I don't think I really brought too much extra stuff um, other than those pieces. Those were kind of the main things that I got rid of. What did you use for navigation on this? Is there a particular, is there a map? I think there's a map set from the Superior Hiking Association. Is that what you used? Yeah, I just used a waterproof map set that they have. And it's it actually comes in six different sections of the trail. So I brought all of those. And then I did also have a backup GPS that I did use to text my wife too. It's that Garmin inReach. And so I was able to text her every morning and every night just so she knew I was safe. You mentioned the guidebook. And so that was something, was that something that was helpful to you? The guide to the Superior Hiking Trail? Was that something that was helpful to you in planning the trip? Yeah, definitely. It was very helpful in planning because it does give a good detail of what to expect at the campsites and kind of what to expect along the trail. I wasn't necessarily as concerned about what to expect along the trail, but as far as distance between campsites, water sources at the campsites, it's super helpful. And there's also a superior hiking trail data book, I think. Is that something you also had or used or or no? No, actually, that data book came out this year, this summer, oh, okay. so it wasn't available when I did my hike. Oh, they were just holding back on you, so you'd have to <laughs> yeah. suffer a little bit. How did it work out that you were able to pick up resupplies and, and those kinds of things? Did you have to go off the trail significantly to get to resupply locations? And did you have to communicate with your family you know, to get, you mentioned they drove up once. How did that all work out and logistically? The resupply locations, well, the towns along the trail are actually very convenient for resupply. Most of them are within a couple miles of the trail. So I did go off the trail a few times, but it really wasn't that far. And every time I hiked in, there was a couple times where I tried to get a hitch back to the trail, but it didn't necessarily work out. There was one time actually where I was loading my bag back up at a uh, gas station with all of my resupply. And these this group of four-wheelers came up and was asking about my hike and stuff like that. And one of them actually did give me a ride back to the trail, which I was grateful for. And then as far as communication on the trail, other than my Garmin GPS, the cell signal along the trail is actually fairly good throughout the whole trail, especially if you're up on some of the ridges along the trail. And so if AT&T, Verizon, I have Verizon, and it works quite well in most spots. And so what did you do for food? What was your plan for making sure you had the calories you needed? That I didn't plan out as well as maybe I should have. There's definitely times where 
I probably was definitely calorically deficient. And even my wife, when I got done with the hike, was like, you definitely lost some weight during this hike. So there was, there was times I, n- I never really felt it, though, as far as energy-wise on, on the trail. I did get to towns every anywhere between two to five days I was resupplying. So every time I did go into resupply, I would get a meal at the local diner or bar or whatever. And usually it consisted of a burger and an appetizer and maybe some more if I was still hungry. So I definitely got some food in there. But as far as trail food, I kind of went with an oatmeal for breakfast, kind of just some easy food that I didn't need to cook for lunch, like peanut butter wraps, jerky, some cheeses, and some trail mix. And then for dinners, I would do freeze-dried meals, mountain house meals. And my idea with that was I didn't want to do dishes, so I didn't want to kind of have to cook either. All I had to do was boil water, put it in the pack, kind of let it sit and hydrate, and then eat and be done with it. Lick the spoon and dishes are done. Exactly. That's the way I like to do it too. So how did, how difficult was this for you to set up logistically from where you live? Is this a significant drive for you to get to this area? It's not too bad. Um, so the, the southern terminus of the trail is only about two hours from where I live. I live in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So it's not too far for, to the northern terminus. It's about another two and a half hour drive. So what we ended up doing, my wife brought me up to the northern terminus to start my hike. We found a campground up there, camped the first night, and then I went on my way and she came back home. We kind of made a day of it that night, the day before I went on my hike. And then she picked me up and we drove home the last day of my hike. Are there any permits required to do this hike? Nope, no permits. It's free. There's all the campsites along the trail are free as well, unless you are in that Duluth section. So there's about 50 miles at the very southern end where there's no campsites that are free along the trail. There are campgrounds, like I said, but most people get hotels usually in that area, or there's a couple of campgrounds right on the trail. What did you end up doing there? So in that section... I actually tried to do that section as quick as possible because I didn't really want to. This was right after our road trip and I didn't want to fork out money for hotels and stuff like that. I did get one hotel, which was I felt needed. Um, It was my second shower of the whole hike. (laughs) And then the the last day I was going to stay at a campground. It's about probably halfway in that 50 mile stretch where there's no campgrounds. But that was full. I kind of waited too long to book it. Part of that was just because I didn't know if I was going to make it because I was doing 20, 25 mile days right there. And so my wife actually drove up that night right after she got done with teaching. And she picked me up and we ended up just sleeping in our car somewhere. And then she ended up hiking with me that next day, that last day to the southern terminus. At least you got something nice out of it besides sleeping in the car. You got to hike with her the next day. Yeah. Well, it still had our bed from the road trip in the car, too. Oh, so perfect. It was, it was pretty comfortable. <laughs> okay. What about, so the, you mentioned the campsites. There's My understanding from looking this up is there's 94 different campsites along the trail. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works, how these different campsites are set up, and kind of how that spacing is and, and deciding where to camp and how all that works for you? 
Yeah, so the campsites themselves, most of them are on water sources or at least within a couple hundred yards of a water source. So um, there's only a couple that don't have a water source. There's a few that have few trees, so they're not good for hammock camping. So, And those are actually all noted on the Superior Hiking Trail website, which is very good. There's there's a little through-hike section on their site that helped me plan, at least for that. And then they're anywhere from, I think, like a couple miles apart on average, I would say, to maybe at most like 10 miles, even if that. You come across them quite often, and they can range from these group multi-sites where you can get tons of tents on to only a couple tents. On the Superior Hiking Trail, you can only camp at designated campsites. So you can't do any dispersed camping. And they have that kind of rule, even though it runs through some national forest and state forest land where it's allowed, that dispersed camping. But it runs through so much private land and so much unmarked private land that they just say camp only at designated campsites. And all the campsites have a fire pit and a small vault toilet. So for someone who's never been to this part of Minnesota or been to Minnesota at all, how would you describe the terrain, what this area looks like? Yeah. So most people, I think when they think of Minnesota, you think of the lakes and not very mountainous, um, pretty flat in general, but up there, I would say it's a little more challenging than one might assume. It's very rocky, lots of roots, very muddy in parts. And it also, it, there's a lot of up and down. Um, it goes all the way up to these awesome overlooks of Lake Superior on these ridges down to these river valleys. And you're constantly going up and down and up and down between the two. And it's, I think, some of the harder terrain that I've hiked in Minnesota. It definitely compares to parts I've done on the Appalachian Trail out in um, New England area. And so the, is the view of Lake Superior a, a pretty significant highlight of the trip, too, throughout? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I would say, throughout the entire trail, every so often you'll be able to come up to this overlook of Lake Superior. And it's always it's always a bit different, and it's always picturesque. And, yeah, it's there's a number of different spur trails throughout the hike, too, so you can take all these different... I, I took some... And then after a while, I was like, all right, I just want to get some miles in. I got to get to the next campsite. <laughs> so I didn't do all that I wanted to, but I got quite a few in and yeah, some great views of Lake Superior. And what's the forest like there? Is this mostly like a hardwood kind of trees that change colors in the fall? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it varies a little bit. There's There's a lot of hardwood, but there's also a lot of kind of boreal forest too. There's a lot of pine and spruce and stuff mixed in as well, especially in the northern part. I think I read somewhere that every mile there's either a, an overlook of Lake Superior or a waterfall. Maybe not in September. I don't know if the waterfalls are still running in that part of the year, but quite a bit of waterfalls as well. Yeah, quite a bit of waterfalls. And it it passes through, I think it's eight different state parks as well. Um, and I think, I want to say like every one of them has a waterfall. 
at wow. least 90% of them have waterfalls. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely get to see some waterfalls. And when I did hike, it rained quite a bit. So there is quite a few waterfalls going still. Okay. Yeah, that's right. With all that rain that first week, it probably kept you. That was probably one upside of all that rain. <laughs> you had good waterfalls for the trip. Yeah. And you don't have any dried up creeks for water sources and stuff like that. Yeah. What about animal life? Anything out there that stands out? Yeah. There, I mean, there's a variety of animal life. I didn't encounter too many. The most I encountered was some squirrels and porcupines, but there are moose up there. There's wolves, there's coyotes, black bear. I saw tons of signs for black bears, but never encountered one up there. And I heard a bunch of wolves a couple different nights. So that was awesome, actually, to hear the wolves. This one night I camped on this campsite right north of Gooseberry State Park. And all of a sudden I laid down to go to sleep. And on one side you heard about three different wolves howling. The other side a couple more. And then I woke up a couple hours later, and then they were all on this other side. So it was pretty cool to hear. At least they weren't all closer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't moving closer, but they're just trying to all gather up, I think. What about water crossings? Are there bridges, or is it a lot of getting your feet wet, or how does that work? Mostly it's bridges. Um, There's a couple spots where there are bridges out that um, haven't been replaced, and there's no plans to replace them anytime soon. So the Split Rock River is one of them, and the Encampment River, and both of them I had to cross. Well, the Encampment was low enough, but after a good rainfall, it does get pretty high, and so people have gone through it in halfway up the shin to knee knee height at the deepest I've heard of, whereas the Split Rock River, when I went across that, it was probably about almost knee high up, and I've heard of people going half their thigh. But again, I'm taller, so maybe for shorter people, it's a little deeper. <laughs> okay. Well, not too bad then. So it's it's not too bad. No, um, it's not like out west that you would forge some of those rivers or anything like that. But yeah, for the most part, there's good boardwalks and there's some nice bridges out there. How's the signage along the route? Is it pretty easy to stay on the trail? Yeah, I'd say for the most part, it's well-marked. There's a couple spots um, where you get kind of lost a little bit with the signage, and there's a couple spots where it can get overgrown. Um, There's a spot up in the north. I think it was my second day on the trail, maybe about, I think I was 20 miles into my hike, where these tall grasses will kind of overgrow on the trail. You can still make out the footpath underneath, and then there's a couple other spots where some of the berry bushes have kind of grown over the trail as well. Are they edible? Berry bushes? Yeah. Edible berries? Nice. Yeah, there's some raspberries, blueberries, thimbleberries. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't go in the right season to eat any, though. Yeah, the bears have probably already eaten them all by then. Yeah. So I thought what would be good is to go through an itinerary and not day by day, but sort of section by section, starting going from north to south in the direction that you went. And so this was a 310 mile trail, about 500 kilometers. What I thought I'd do then is I'll identify the section and maybe you can give us some thoughts on what that part of the trail was like. And then we can go through the sections that way. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the, the first section is 270 degree overlook, which is the start, the Northern terminus to Grand Marais. And that's 54.2 miles or about 87 kilometers. And what, what was that first part of the trail like? 
it was it was good. Like I mentioned earlier, it's the more remote part of the trail, so you don't encounter as many people. Um, the 270 degree overlook is amazing. You can see for miles and miles into Canada, and it's kind of like the Mount Katahdin of the Superior Hiking Trail. And most people do finish there if they're going south to north, but I enjoyed that part there. There's a nice section along the Devil Track River, too, that the Devil Track River kind of is this gorge between the rocks, and then you can kind of see down into the river. So it's it's a nice little hike through there. It's a lot of kind of up and down again. How close is the trail to Canada when you start? Is it pretty much right on the border? It's fairly close, within a few miles, I would say. And so the next part of the trail is Grand Marais to Lutzen, and that's 35.2 miles or 56 and a half kilometers. Any memory of that particular section? Very wet. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this was during your heavy rain part of the trip. Yeah, and there was a part of the trail that was flooded for a good three to four miles, too. So it was ankle to mid-shin height water, and that was that was not fun. So that was that was where my foot problems started. I resupplied in Grand Marais, got back on the trail, and then trudged through about three to four miles of water before I got to some drier trail. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it's kind of a marshy section. Yeah, there's this one area. They've been having some beaver problems there, too, that kind of damming it up, and it floods the trail. And yeah, that, that section's nice. And then once you get to, there's a, there's a really nice lake in there too, Lake Agnes, that a lot of people really like to camp at. And it's very beautiful, especially when I went to, you get the fall colors across the lake that just started. And that Lutzen ski area is real nice too to resupply it. It's only a half mile from the trail to the uh, ski chalets and restaurants and stuff like that. And you were able to leave a box there? Yes, I was able to leave a box there. And then I also ate at Papa Charlie's, which is a bar there. <laughs> All right. We'll get free plug now for Papa Charlie's. <laughs> okay. The next section is Lutzen to Caribou Falls State Wayside. That's a 34 and a half miles or about 55 and a half kilometers. What, what's that part like? That part is um, you're kind of on the backside of the Lutzen Ski Hill. And so it's, you're kind of going up and down between a couple mountains um, right there. And that's, some people say it's the hardest. I think it's it's a little gentler, I think, than steep, but you are going up and down quite a bit. And once you get to Caribou, though, it's it's a nice couple nice campsites right on Caribou. And you have a um real nice kind of waterfall that's right next to the East Caribou campsite, which I stayed at. And then from there it's Caribou Falls State Wayside to Silver Bay. Silver Bay is that right on Lake Superior? That's a bay on Lake Superior, or it's a it's a town actually right up there. Oh, okay. And yes, it's it's right kind of across the highway that goes along the lake. So I was able to resupply in that town as well and have another meal. But I think the most prominent section of maybe even the entire trail is right along there, Bean and Bear Lake, and it's super popular, especially during the fall time. People seek it out to take, um, there's this overlook over Bear Lake that you get this real nice, it's kind of a teardrop-shaped lake, and then you can see all this yellow and orange leaves during the fall. And it's actually 
that campsite is where my wife and I got engaged. I proposed to her at that campsite. Awesome. That's cool. So you were able to come back through that place on foot. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't stay at the site just because it is so popular. Mm-hmm. That, and it was a weekend at that time. But that one, that's also probably, I would say, the the hardest section of the sections that you're going through so far. Hardest because of the up and down? As far as the terrain of going up and down, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that section, I don't think I mentioned, is about 45 and a half miles or 73 kilometers. And then from Silver Bay to Two Harbors is another 44 and a half miles or about 72 kilometers. What's that one like? And that one, it gets a little bit gentler, especially once you get towards Two Harbors too. And that one, you get you get all sorts of terrain in that one, I feel like. You get Crosby Manitou State Park, which I think is the toughest part of the trail. Just it's so rugged, very rocky. Another up and down, down to the Manitou River, up to Horseshoe Ridge. But you also get, there's a part there where they just clear cut some of the forest too. I don't Mm. know if there was a logging operation or whatever, but that was different from when I first hiked it. Because that was the area that I very, my very first hike on the trail near the Baptism River. And it was completely different from what I remembered it, at least. Wow. But it. It's a it's a great section of trail, and I think that if I were to recommend a little section for people to just start out on the trail, it would be that section. What about, so the next section is Two Harbors to Duluth, and that's 57 miles or about 92 kilometers. So now I guess we're getting into a little bit more populated area. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe even the one that you, we had just gone over was maybe a little bit more popular just because you kind of get more into some of the more ruggedness and varied terrain whereas so when you mean pop, like popular for for section hikes for backpacking like weekend backpacking trips yeah yeah okay and i i think the section from duluth to two harbors is gentler it's more rolling hills and maybe not as much as what you would think of the North shore as just because you don't have as many of those overlooks or as much as that kind of rocky terrain that were you um, kind of on cruise control at this point? Yeah. that That's when I kind of cranked out my 25 miles, 20 miles. And yeah, it was just kind of one leg after the other. And I wasn't really kind of having to secure my footing or watch out for the roots and stuff like that. However, there were quite a few roots. And then the last section is from Duluth to the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. What is that section like? That section is probably the most surprising to me because I thought it was going to be more... You, You start out in Duluth, so you're in the city, and it actually goes through the northern part of the city where there's a nature center and it's kind of woodsy still. And then you're on some city streets for a little while and you go past the Duluth campus, college campus, and then you get back through the, you actually go down to the Lake Canal Park, which is kind of a more of a kind of touristy area. And then you kind of come back up the hill and you're overlooking the city then and you get more into the, um, the more rugged terrain again kind of going up and down and up and down. And then you get to the state park and it's, it's a little, it, it gets a little gentler. And then the, the very end, the Southern terminus, it has one campsite that is actually free and it's only, I think it's a mile, maybe not even a mile from the Southern terminus. 
at but at this point, order. Sarah was waiting for you. You didn't have to camp another night. Yeah, exactly. She actually <laughs> hiked from, we started out from Spirit Mountain, which was about 25 miles from the southern terminus. And we went all day. And once we got to Jay Cook State Park, which there was like another eight miles to the southern terminus, she's like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> the most she's hiked for quite some time. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to keep going. And I just kind of ran ahead. And at this point, I had already put my pack in the car. So I was cruising. I was 25, 30 pounds lighter. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be in such a different place as far as what you're able to do than somebody who hasn't been on the trail for almost three weeks. Yeah, yeah, she was kind of impressed with how quick I was going. Because usually I do hike quick, but that day it was a a little more than she expected, I think. And so that last section was about 50 miles or 81 kilometers. You mentioned earlier that you did a couple of minor spur trails to see some of the scenery. Did you do any other kinds of side trips throughout this? Or once you got going, you were just thinking, stay on the trail and keep going in the right direction? Yeah, once I got going, I just kept going. There was a couple times where I was like, should I just stay in town for the night? Um, Especially when I got to Grand Marais that first night, or that first day, I should say. And I was trying to kind of, you had to go back up the hill about two and a half miles to get back to the trail and I was trying to get a hitch up to the to the trail again and I I just couldn't and I even tried to call in a shuttle service and they were booked and so she's like why don't you just stay on the trail and I was like no I have it in my mind that I'm getting to the next campsite so no I I didn't really kind of take my time and see the sites and I think part of it too was that we've done that trail so much and we've gone to those towns so often that like there wasn't really anything that I was seeking out within the towns along the trail or side kind of hikes. Yeah. About staying in towns, you know, I, I have a philosophy about doing longer hikes and whether I can stay in a hotel or in a town. And my philosophy has been, if I walked all the way there from one end of the trail, I can stay in a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) I've earned the right to do that. If I walked, you know, a hundred miles to get to it or something like that. Um, but yeah, I understand also just wanting to get back on the trail and get out of the towns. That makes a lot of sense too. Did you have any zero days where you just didn't hike? I did have a zero day. I'll call it a zero day. I hiked half a mile. Well, I hiked a mile and a half, (laughs) but that was only to, that was the day that my wife came up and our moms and we went into town, got new shoes. I hiked down from my campsite, which was a mile. And then I hiked half a mile to the next campsite for that night. So I'm, I'm calling it a zero day, even though I did a little bit of hiking. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Okay. We'll give you credit for that. A little bit of hike on that. It's not a full zero. Yeah. So wh- I guess after doing this hike, what sticks out to you as the thing about it that's most different or most challenging from sort of traditional long weekend kind of trip doing this kind of longer, longer through hike? I think the mental aspect of it got to me a little bit um, especially in the middle when things weren't necessarily going my way with, you know, having some sore feet and bad weather and all of that. And just kind of having to get through the grind of maybe not wanting to be on the trail as much during that time. And I, there was a day where, I, yeah, I called my wife twice from the trail within the matter, within an hour. And I was just kind of, were you kind of considering pulling the plug? I was actually like that after that first week when she came up, I was like, well, why don't I just go home with you? My feet aren't in great condition. And she goes to me, she told me, 
you said you wanted to do this. You're going to go do this. You're going to complete it. And she gave me that tough love type type uh, response. And I was like, all right, you're right. You're right. I can do this. Sounds <laughs> like you have a good coach. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that mental aspect of it was just, especially solo too, because you don't have anybody right there on the trail with you to kind of pick you up or kind of vent to or that morale support. So you have to work through it all yourself. What about, so you just mentioned about being solo. Were there other people out there doing through hikes? Uh, I guess if you, if there were a lot of them might've been going the opposite direction. So I guess you would, were there people going in your direction that you could commiserate with or camp with? Yeah, actually there was. And the first half of my hike, actually, I camped with the same woman. I met her on the first day and we just happened to camp at the same campsite. Our goal was kind of the same mileage each day. So we just kind of ended up at the same campsite night after night. And even after a little bit, we were just like, all right, what, what campsite are you headed towards? And then, you know, she might say something or I might say something. And we're like, all right, we'll see you there. And then we'd hike our own hike during the day and end up at the same campsite. So, yeah, I think for the first 13 days, I was able to just kind of talk with her throughout the nights and just say, you know, how's your hike going? And we would bounce things off of each other. And then we kind of split off and I did my more mi- more miles later on in the hike. And there's this other guy too that was going the same way with his dog. And I ran into him and camped with him for the last four nights almost, I would say. And yeah, so kind of the same situation. So there's actually only two nights where I camped by myself, which was surprising to me. Well, it's nice to have some familiarity in a place that's so, you know, where you're alone and it's far from home. Even just seeing one person who you saw that morning, seeing them later in the day gives you a little bit of comfort, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And out on the trail, yeah, we were kind of on our own. But having that kind of community at the campsite was was nice. So this wasn't one of these hikes where there's a really like huge community of sort of the way I think about them is sort of a traveling circus where every day they end up in the same place. Sounds like only a couple people really going your direction and you know, probably not like coming up with trail names or things like that. Yeah, no, we weren't really coming up with any trail names or anything. And it, no, it wasn't not necessarily like the AT that you think of where you got this kind of big bubble kind of traveling as one up the trail. I think maybe it's because it's so short that people can start at quite varying times throughout the year. And so you don't have like a ton of people starting in March or April like you do on the AT and you have have it more spread out. And I think going going south, because I did um, run into quite a few people going up north, going northbound. So I passed quite a few through hikers going that way. But even so, I don't think I would have maybe had that kind of group mentality kind of along the trail going north either. You mentioned the one time where you got a ride on someone's ATV back to the trail. Were there other instances um, besides your wife or mother or mother-in-law coming up? Were there other instances of local people helping you out along the way with anything? Any kind of trail magic stories? I mean, the ATV story is a great one. Yeah, but. yeah actually, I had a couple. Somebody gave me some um, uh, Luco tape for my heel because I, was, I didn't have any moleskin at the time or anything. It was just kind of ace bandaged up. And he's like, here, put this on until you can maybe get something with a little more padding or something. 
So that was very nice, and it was the last of his tape that he adds too, so I really appreciated that. And then also one night after a resupply, I was kind of headed back towards my campsite, and I was still in, this was in Lutzen, and somebody was leaving, and as they were driving through, they saw me hiking back towards the trail and gave me this big, huge piece of chocolate cake that they weren't going to eat, so I had some good dessert at my campsite. On your blog post about this on your website, you talked a bit about your morning routines and evening routines, and it seemed like that was something that became quite important to you as the trail unfolded for you. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I feel like as you are out there for a while, you kind of figure out kind of what works and what's most efficient, because a lot of your energy is going into the hike itself and just getting from point A to point B. So I felt the less I can put into doing these other little tasks at camp and stuff and just have it become second nature, the more energy can be focused on the hike itself and the more enjoyable that can be. So I did get into a routine of once I got to camp, kind of setting up camp and then I would set up everything, kind of get water boiling and then change out of my hiking clothes into my dry camp clothes. Um, In the mornings, I would wake up, go get my food bag, make my oatmeal right away. And as my oatmeal was cooking, then I would kind of stuff my sleeping bag away and start taking down some things. And so I was trying to do a couple little things at the same time to save some time as well. And that, I think, once I got to camp as well, I would filter water right away. And I had a gravity filter, so I really enjoyed that, um, especially getting to camp. On the hike itself, it was maybe not the best thing just because you had to wait for it to filter. But once I got to camp, it was a four liter gravity filter. So filled it up once and it was enough for the evening, you know, a drink of water at night for my breakfast and then to fill my water bottle. So I only had to filter once when I got to camp instead of going back and forth like I saw some people doing. How long did it take you to kind of nail down the routine? I would say I got really into it probably the third or fourth night. Like I kind of had it, had my whole schedule down once I got to camp and once I was about to leave camp. Yeah. That's good that it happened early in the trip because then you had a lot of time to be able to utilize that efficient tr- uh, way of doing yeah. things. Yeah, definitely. So, what are some things are, that you would have done differently now that you've, you know, that you've, if you had to go back and do this again, are there things you would do differently? or lessons learned that came out of this for you? I really enjoy trail shoes now um, after that experience with my boots. And I see why people do it. I was I was always into boots and for my section hikes and all that. But I see why people do it for the longer hikes. Just because they dry out, they're a little more flexible. They let your feet expand if your feet do swell up a bit. So I'm definitely doing trail shoes from now on. I would probably pack a little bit lighter. I was trying to do it, like I said earlier, just with what I had. Anything that I had on my section hike, I figured, oh, it's only 300 miles. Even if it's a little extra weight, no big deal. But I learned pretty quickly that that wears on you after a while, especially on a through hike, even if it's only 300 miles. So I would definitely look into ways I can reduce my weight as far as like maybe maybe a little bit warmer sleeping bag so it's a little lighter weight or even doing a top quilt in the hammock instead of a sleeping bag 
and just some of the clothing options that I chose. Like I brought a flannel shirt, which is actually pretty heavy. And I think I would do instead of that, I would do a um, kind of like a light packable down jacket, maybe, or even a fleece or something. Yeah, but you look the part in a flannel yeah. shirt. <laughs> Especially with the beard, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so, and you mentioned the foot issues that came up. I guess we don't need to get into the gory details, but was this basically, was this too much water issues or was it blisters or what What was happening? I think it was my boots got too tight and I think with it all being so wet, it was just kind of rubbing and there's a lot of friction, not really a blister, but just kind of rubbing raw. Mm-hmm. On the back of my heel. Just pain. Yeah. And so it, it is just painful to walk after that, just because of the friction on the backside. So on the positive side of things, what do you take away from this experience? Like what, what most sticks with you, whether it's an individual memory or just sort of a feeling or uh, just a thought for your future? Well, I think that, I mean, something I took away was that even through the struggle and through the days that I was just mentally not there and just like, oh my gosh, I wish this was done and I don't want to be out here anymore. I'm so glad that I went through with it and that I did listen to my wife when she told me that I needed to complete it. It was just on some of those days where there was rain all day or all night and then that little bit of sunshine comes out, even if it was for 30 seconds. There's a couple moments where I was just like, man, this is beautiful out here. And you just take a couple of those breaths and stop and pause and look around. And especially if you're on one of those overlooks and you're just, you can see for miles and miles and life is good at that point. And I think just being able to accomplish something that I've been wanting to for years too was, was a huge accomplishment for me. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that I've, I had the opportunity to do it and I would definitely do it again. It's put the, uh, through hike bug in me. That's great. Anything else we haven't covered about the hike itself that you want to tell us about, or we pretty much covered it all. Yeah, I, I think we covered it all. Okay. Well, thank you a ton for telling us about your hike. That's great. Sounds like a fantastic hike. It's probably now somewhere on my list which is, seems to get longer every year and never shorter, no matter how many hikes I do. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it seems to be being on everyone's list these days. It's getting more and more popular. And that's one thing I noticed, um, even when we go up on just our little weekend hikes, is how much more busy the trail's getting. So you and your wife, uh, Sarah, also have a podcast called Hiking Through Life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so my wife is the host of that podcast, and I do a lot of behind the scenes. Sometimes I will be on the podcast. But yes, Hiking Through Life, we interview people about how the outdoors has influenced them and just kind of let them tell their story. And what we are hoping to do is to encourage others to get outdoors more and to just really live a more meaningful life. We've found so much value in the outdoors and how it's kind of really just balanced us out in our everyday lives. And we're hoping that we can in some way inspire others to get something out of other people's stories that have had some connection with the outdoors as well. How has that been teaming up with your wife on a project like this? Has that been fun for you guys? It's been, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, there's there's always those little things where, you know, being husband and wife on a project has got its issues sometimes, especially when I get a little bit 
too into it and everything revolves around talking about the podcast or our website or something, you know, so <laughs> it's, it sometimes doesn't shut off, <laughs> but well, that means you're excited about it. At but least. yes, yeah, we, we are super excited about it. And I think we really are opposites of each other. So it works out super well. I'm very introverted. She's extroverted. So she's great at hosting and interviewing and stuff. And I love doing all of the tech stuff behind the scenes. So in that way, it works excellent. Well, I, I think you guys have got something really good there and I've enjoyed listening to it. And so I definitely encourage everyone to check it out. I assume it's available on all of the sort of us- usual podcast apps, but you also mentioned a website. Do you want to give your website address? Yeah, our website is hikingthroughlife.net and you can find the podcast there or you can find it, like you said, wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Spotify, etc. Okay. So Andy, while I have you, before we go, I've got a few more questions for you. Okay. What's the one hike or trip you've done that others shouldn't miss out on? I think the one that sticks out to me is Jasper National Park. My wife and I went there for our honeymoon. We were there for 10 days, and most of it was backpacking. So we went throughout a number of different trails there, and it's beautiful. It's in the Canadian Rockies. You can't go wrong with any of the trails. We went on, I think it was four different trails. I don't recall the names of them, but like I said, you can't go wrong with any of them. You see the awesome snow-covered peaks. There are amazing waterfalls, and the water there is amazing. It's this kind of bluish-green color, and I'm sure people have seen pictures of these these lakes. It's It's gorgeous. Yeah, I have seen pictures, and I've never made it up that far. I've made it as far north as uh, Waterton Lakes National Park, which is just north of Glacier in mm-hmm. Montana, so it's the Alberta side of that park. But I would love to get to Jasper or to Banff for both, and I have yet to do it. So there's another thing on the list. So what's the dumbest thing you've ever done while outdoors? All right, well, the dumbest would be my wife and I went to the Boundary Waters for our first time. So the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which is also in Minnesota. The last day of our trip, I had just caught some fish. And so we were excited to have this this fish dinner. It was our first kind of fresh meal of the trip. So this was a four-day trip as well. And we didn't have any foil or a pan to cook the fish in. So I thought, oh, what can I use? I found a flat rock. So I heated up a couple flat rocks over the fire and put the fish fillets on top of those, which worked out great. But the skin kind of stuck to the rock and I didn't want it, you know, there's there's bears and stuff up there. So I didn't want it around camp when we went to bed. So instead of kind of walking it quite a ways from our campsite, I figured, you know, I'll just throw it right into the lake and it'll sink and no worries. So where I was at, though, at the campfire was about 25 feet up from the lake shore, and then maybe about another 30 yards across. Well, not 30 yards, I'm sorry, 30 feet across. And our canoe was kind of off to the right, right down there. So I decided I was going to throw these rocks from right there. <laughs> well, the first one went perfect, and then the second one kind of slipped out of my hand and hit the canoe. Made this big kind of gouge out of the canoe and I thought oh, it went wow. all the way through but luckily it didn't and we were able to get back home but yeah next time I'm definitely 
walking the rock away from the campsite and not throwing it in the direction of a canoe. So you almost had to spend the rest of the trip bailing water. Yes. I had duct tape and was prepared to maybe make a patch, but I don't know if that would have held. (laughs) What is the most valuable thing that backpacking has taught you? I think the most valuable thing is just to, one, slow down, and two, it gave me a, a big sense of humility. I think kind of puts the ego in check when you get out there, especially if you go for miles and miles, kind of like I did on my through hike. When you get up on top of a ridge and you can see for miles and miles, or you sit under the starry night sky, there's just this sense of, wow, there's so much more out there than just me. And it kind of takes the focus away from what you're doing and really... I think like sometimes we can get caught up in how can I get ahead? You know, I'm stressing about all these little things at home. And when you get up there, you just, you kind of see that landscape and you can see that ridge from five miles over there that you just hiked from and everything in between. And you're just like, wow, this vast wilderness could probably not even care about me. But at the same time, you're just like, wow, I just accomplished that as well. And there's just that really sense of humility and really um, gratifying sense of accomplishment too. So it's taught me that and just really that there, you don't need as much as you think you need. Certainly gives you some perspective, doesn't it? Andy Kermode, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks again to Andy Kermode for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope you learned a lot about the Superior Hiking Trail. So I hope Andy and I have inspired you to hike the Superior Hiking Trail. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense, and when you get back, tell me how it went. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we come to my home, the San Francisco Bay Area, an area that's home to more than 8 million people. But on the eastern edge of the Bay Area stands Mount Diablo at almost 4,000 feet tall. From the west, it rises above rolling hills. From the east, it's a pretty striking lone beacon rising out of the Sacramento Valley. From the summit, you can see virtually all the way across California, from San Francisco to the Sierra Nevada mountains. In my family, we jokingly call Mount Diablo the Lonely Mountain, like it's out of a Tolkien book. Running along the western edge of Mount Diablo is a trail that provides a rare opportunity to hike and camp in wilderness right up against the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, that such a trail even exists here is a real conservation success story. The trail goes through six different protected areas that, cobbled together, allow the trail to exist. The trail goes through rolling hills and oak savanna and has enough up and down to challenge any hiker. On the next episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Diablo Trail in the coast range of Northern California. And that is going to do it for today. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail.
Thanks for listening.